All right, you may not be aware of the fact that last week <clears throat> a sermon was preached on a very similar theme that I'm delivering on. In fact, we've got two mission sermons in a row. Um, uh, ben Ossenbach, many of you know, he's one of the young men uh, attending our church. He's in seminary now and uh, you know, training to become a uh, a Lutheran pastor? How could that be? <laughs> he did a great job last week sharing from the book of Acts the, uh, the attitude that we need to have as believers toward fulfilling our mission that uh, all the world would know joy in God. Now, he preached from the New Testament. I decided, after I heard his message, I'm going to do an Old Testament passage. And I want you to just uh, bear with me for just a moment, because the first, you know, page, oh, we're having a whale of a time today. Um, <clears throat> the first page and a half of this message is apologetic. In other words, I'm going to defend... Uh, the book of Jonah, as a reliable source of the Word of God to be taught to all generations. And the book of Jonah, historically, hasn't gotten a fair hearing, as far as I'm concerned. So I'm going to begin with a little historical context. Jonah was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II, during the years 782 B.C. and 753 B.C. That was a couple of years ago. He served among the uh, ten northern tribes of Israel, and that was not an enviable position. Do you know that of all the kings in the northern tribes, not a single one was a godly king? Not one. Yeah, scary. I wouldn't want to be a prophet <laughs> under an ungodly king. Jonah was likely called to preach in Nineveh one generation before God sent the Assyrians to conquer Samaria in 722. You can do the math on that. That's amazing. And within one generation, you need to know that the Ninevites were not nice, civilized people. In fact, God told Jonah, you need to go to Nineveh and warn them that their wickedness, their violence has gotten my attention. And if they don't repent, I'm judging them. The whole city of Nineveh, it was a large city, it took three days to walk from one side of Nineveh to the other. <clears throat> You may wonder, how was Jonah able to preach to the Ninevites if he didn't know their language? Now, I'd never done research on this particular question before. I just presumed that good missionaries always learn the language. Right, Howie and Claudia? Yeah, right. Well, come to find out, the Ninevites um, spoke 
Aramaic. Do you know anybody else who spoke Aramaic? Jesus. 700 years later, Aramaic was still being used in the Near East. And so he didn't have to learn the language. (laughs) He was ready to go. Well, he wasn't very willing to go. What kind of biblical literature is the book of Jonah? This is an interesting question. Some want to suggest that the book is just an allegorical representation of God's judgment on Israel because of their failure to obey him. Some consider the book just a myth. I mean, who ever heard of a big fish eating people, right? <clears throat> uh, one of the reasons why we, uh, some consider it a myth is scientists will say, we can't figure out what the genus species name for this fish is. And so they cast all kinds of doubt that the God who created the universe could come up with a fish that would swallow a human being. I remember one time I was listening to um, uh, a news program, and uh, any of you know the name Bill Riley? Okay, yeah. Bill Riley was uh, saying, poked fun at the book of Jonah. He says, well, this is just a myth. You know, we don't have to take this, you know, that book seriously. And the preacher in me just couldn't take that sitting down. So I wrote him an email, which he never responded to. (laughs) And here's what I said to Bill Riley, and I'm sharing it with you too. When Jesus was asked for a sign that he was the Messiah, and they were asking for a fantastic sign, maybe in the stars or in the sky or whatever, (laughs) Jesus said, sorry, The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the big fish, so will the Son of Man. Now, let me ask you this. If the book of Jonah is a myth, the most important doctrine of the Christian church is the resurrection of Jesus. Amen? Yeah, if he hasn't been raised, none of us are going to be raised. All right, so Jesus is saying, so certain is my resurrection, he compares it to what happened with Jonah. Listen, if this is a myth, he's not a very uh, good debater, wouldn't you say? To say something that is totally meaningless and prove your point by it? Bill Riley didn't have a response to that. Matthew 12 and verse 40 um, is the verse. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The goal of my message this morning is to answer one question. Please, don't leave without finding the answer, all right? There's only one. How can the book of Jonah teach us to own God's mission 
of bringing the gospel to our world. How can Jonah help us? Now, I'm going to, in just a moment, share the outline of the whole book of Jonah. Four chapters, 48 verses. I hope you'll read it. You know, go home this afternoon after we've had our feast together and so on, and and read the whole book of Jonah. It's fascinating. And it's right to the point. So Jonah is a historical narrative. In other words, a true story, a real Jonah, a real fish, and a real rebellion. (laughs) Because Jonah was not a very faithful missionary, as we're going to see. I want you to know that I'm going to pick on Jonah this morning. Don't get me wrong. I don't disrespect Jonah. I see in Jonah a lot of me. And maybe you'll see a little of you in him as well. This book of Jonah shows the compassion, the mercy, the love of God for a pretty wicked people, the Ninevites. Consider the fact that the God that we serve is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Book of Hebrews says that. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Don't think that God all of a sudden turned on mercy and love to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth um, in the New Testament. No, he had a plan from the beginning to reach the ends of the earth. Genesis 12.3 I will bless those who bless you, Abraham. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You go, God. That's great. There are families all over this planet that long for the blessing of God, the forgiveness of God, the love of God. Genesis 28, 14. Your offspring, Abram, shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now you know that blessing is through Messiah, God's anointed one, who would come and die in the sinner's place, pay the penalty for our sinfulness. I love this psalm, Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. We're not exactly sure what that means, but I've heard that many scholars believe, pause and think about this. It's in a good place for that. That your way may be known on earth your saving power among some of the nations. I just read the reviled, slandered version. No. Among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. 
Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. That's that joy word again. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Think about that. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase, God. Our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. It's going to happen. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Christ Jesus is Lord. I'd like to share just one more evidence of the mercy, the love of God with you um, before we dive into the outline. One of the ways that God has shown his mercy to the nation of Israel was by giving them laws that were totally just and fair. In the Near East, there was always more than one set of laws. If you were a king, you had certain laws you had to obey. If you were a normal citizen, you had certain laws you were required to obey. If you were a foreigner, you might really be abused because, again, you had no standing. But in Israel, everybody was under God's law, even the king. This is unheard of. If you study ancient Near East history, you won't read that King Sennacherib was defeated in battle when he came to Jerusalem and lost 180,000 soldiers in one night. Why? Because if you were a scribe recording history and you recorded a defeat, you lost your head. History is not about telling the truth. History is about flattering the king. Amen? We don't live that way in America, though, do we? Watch out. (laughs) Again, this is supernatural. God is the one who understands true justice and equity. And one law for all. In the year 1644, Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish Presbyterian minister. He wrote a book called Lex Rex. Any Latin speakers here? Lex means law. The to be verb, est, is taken for granted. They left it out. The law is king. Rex is king. And what he was doing is he was responding to those that were saying in the Middle Ages, if the king has the right to rule because he's born in the right family, his word is law. He doesn't necessarily have to obey that law, right? Because it was rex lex. The king is the law. Rutherford said, no way. And where did he get this strange idea that the law is over all of us? Probably from preaching the word, (laughs) to be honest. 
All right. Let's look at a brief outline of the book of Jonah. Chapter 1. Jonah runs from God's call to preach repentance to Nineveh. Uh, Not a very faithful missionary, wouldn't you say? God says, go east. He says, oh, going west. Heading to Tarshish, over there in Spain. (laughs) If you read chapter 1 of the uh, book of Jonah, Amazing things happens there before he's thrown overboard. Let me just make this point. When God calls you to serve, be ready to move. The success of your mission is all about God's timing, what God is intent on doing. Even a rebel like Jonah couldn't mess up God's plan. In fact, As you read the unbelieving sailors on that boat, their sense of the character of God is amazing. They prayed for forgiveness that God wouldn't judge them for throwing Jonah overboard. And Jonah admitted, I'm the reason why this storm is going on. Where do unbelievers get that kind of insight? From the heart of God. Absolutely. Absolutely. The next thing that happens in chapter 1 is the cruise is canceled by inclement weather. I guess it was inclement weather. They emptied the boat of every bit of uh, cargo because they didn't want the boat to sit too low. It was going to get swamped. And remember... The, the, the mariners went looking for everybody on board. Why aren't you praying? Why aren't you beseeching your God? We should be so bold as a church. <laughs> you know, we, we need to unite on our knees in prayer, the, the, the real source of our deliverance. Next, Jonah becomes fish bait. Verses 7 to 17. Uh, And then, okay, we're going to move on to chapter 2. Jonah's swallow leads to shallow repentance and a gut-wrenching release. How do you like that? Now, again, I told you, I warned you I was going to pick on Jonah a little bit. But realize this, you know, if I'm being a little bit sarcastic, the scriptures are sarcastic. In fact, wait till we get to chapter 4, when God says to Jonah, you think you're justified in having a hissy fit over my loving the Ninevites? Hang on. As I was reading chapter 2 of Jonah, I read a number of commentaries. In fact, six different commentaries on this. And most of the ones, this is uh, Jonah's prayer of repentance. And they said, what a model of appropriate repentance uh, Jonah is praying here. I disagreed with every single one of them. 
Jonah prayed a fake prayer of repentance. The real prayer of repentance that I think we should model is King David's prayer in Psalm 51. And what's the big difference? When King David fell into sin by killing Bathsheba's husband (laughs) and, you know, all the adultery and all the rest, he owned his sin fully. He said, not only have I sinned against these people, I've sinned against you, O God. And he asked God for forgiveness. Jonah, on the other hand, he takes the opportunity to basically make fun of unbelievers who worship idols. He says, those who worship idols sacrifice or or never experience the love of God. Now, that may be true. All right, that may be a true fact. But it did not endear Jonah one bit toward the audience that God sent him to, to preach repentance to. Do you find yourself doing that? Do you have excuses for not approaching certain people? You know, there's a fear to being honest or loving with them. Um, Jonah certainly fell into that category in in, uh, chapter 2 of the book of Jonah. When David's repentance was declared in Psalm 51, his life was changed. It really was. It was changed. He had a brand new relationship with God. Um, He prayed that the joy of his salvation would return. Jonah needed that. He really did. All right, let's look at chapter 3. Jonah grudgingly obeys God and the city of Nineveh and its king repent. Really? I mean, could they tell that Jonah's heart really wasn't in this? (laughs) Apparently, it didn't matter because the spirit so deeply stirred in their hearts and lives, they got in sackcloth and ashes, and they declared a fast throughout the whole city of Nineveh. God's mercy on Nineveh and Jonah's childish response is recorded to us in chapter 4. First, we see that Jonah pouts over God's forgiveness of the Ninevites. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Now, hang on to that thought for just a minute. We already have gone through his repentance prayer in chapter 2. But he's admitting right here in chapter 4, my same bad attitude is there. (laughs) Isn't he saying that? Absolutely. 
<clears throat> that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I can only think of one thing appropriate to say here. Wah, wah, wah. It's embarrassing. You know, I'd love to go on the mission field with Jonah, but he's got to shape up a little. <laughs> really, this is, it's really sad. <laughs> All right. So, you know, we can see what change of life and attitude resulted from Jonah's prayer. Well, we can't really detect anything. Now, I have a response to Jonah's request that God take his life away. <laughs> Jonah, you are already living a life which is in rebellion to God and bereft of his blessing because you do not understand the nature of God's salvation. Jonah, it's not about you. It's wonderful that God had mercy on you, Jonah, has forgiven your sins. But if it's just the end result is to congratulate yourself that you're among the blessed few, totally missed the point. God, and in fact, isn't this true? We can fall into the same trap if we think that God merely saves us from the penalties of sin and death, but he hasn't saved us for a purpose. All right? In other words, what do you do with the rest of your life after you receive the mercy of God? Will you share it with others? In fact, we can't keep it quiet. It's life-transforming. It's the only answer that we have to our sinfulness. So let's ask Jonah, what has God saved you for? He saved you from sin and death. What has he saved you for? He saved him for a redeemed life. Jonah, how can God convince us that life is not merely about our comfort, our blessing? It isn't about our goals. I'll follow you diligently, God, as long as you give me everything I want. Really? We read in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, God saved us from sin by his grace for a new life of service for Christ. Uh, there's other verses that say the same thing. 2 Corinthians 5. And he, Christ, died for all. 
that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, your life is not your own. Do you live life as if it was your own? How sad. How joyless. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 5.20 Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, Be reconciled to God. In other words, get right with God. Own your sin. Confess it. And then serve your king. I want you to imagine something with me. And this, again, may sound a little peculiar. Why do you think God decided to use human beings to share the gospel? In the book of Jonah, the fish was first commanded, show up and catch Jonah. Did he have to be on time? I guess he did. Right. Um, God commanded the fish, hey, spit him out. Did he have to be on time? I hope so, because he wanted to land on dry land, right? Okay. Um. The, uh, the worm, okay, that ate the plant. God commanded the worm, eat the plant. <clears throat> Did he do the job? All of the rest of creation is being obedient to God, except the human. What's wrong with us? <laughs> Come on. <clears throat> God challenges um, Jonah at the very end of chapter 4. God teaches Jonah a children's sermon. You think that's appropriate? He's acting like a kid, right? A rather immature child, yeah? God challenges Jonah's bad attitude by giving him an object lesson. Hey, Jonah, what did you think about the plant that popped up and offered you shade from the scorching sun? When the worm came and killed the plant, you thought I owed you better. Life became unbearable because you, Jonah, were not getting your own way. Am I being too hard on him? I don't think so. Did you do anything to cause that plant to grow where it did? Rhetorical question, the answer is no. In fact, God says, I graciously put it there. When I took away my gift, you felt slighted, even though you had done nothing to gain it or deserve it. That's called grace, right? Poor Jonah, you think you have a good cause for resenting my grace 
and mercy to the Ninevites. These are the people who have a real desperate need. He's saying to Jonah, you don't have a desperate need compared to theirs. And he spells it out. Spiritually, he says, they didn't know their right hand from their left, spiritually. They didn't know right from wrong. They didn't have the law of God. They really needed help directly from God. He doesn't stop there. Poor Jonah. Spiritually, they didn't know their right from their left. That's chapter 4, verse 11. They were in bondage to their sinful, self-centered lives. Violence was destroying their families and their society. That was the reason God gave for bringing judgment on them, violence. I was about to judge them and their livestock. God is saying, look it, I have more compassion on the livestock than you do on the people. What are you thinking? Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, how can we break out of a Jonah mindset and develop a lifestyle of being on God's mission to bring joy to all people? What can we do? Let me give you four suggestions this morning that may help you. Number one, examine your heart for biases against unbelievers. Let me encourage you to do this. Never expect from an unbeliever what an unbeliever can't produce by themselves. If you expect righteousness... From an unbeliever, you're destined to be biased negatively against them and not even try to help them. You say, oh, beyond help. We can't help them. Come on. I think this is what is happening to Jonah. So search your heart for biases. Number two. Join forces with your fellow believers. Um, Last week, Ben did a great job sharing some very concrete examples of how we can partner together to um, get to know in the Utica area. We have refugees everywhere. We really do. And the number of people that have uh, tender hearts toward reaching those people is, is relatively small. And, and I say that with shame to, you know, uh, to, you know, for churches because God created us for love and service. <clears throat> when we partner together, network, you know somebody that needs Jesus, I know somebody that needs Jesus, You pray for me. I pray for you. I have the family I'm concerned about over for dinner. And I invite you to come to dinner with me. 
Because we're in a partnership of loving people into the kingdom. Did you hear Howie and Claudia share that that was the key to their ministry? Right, we love them into the kingdom. Number three, adopt an Emmanuel missionary. Changed my hat, I'm on the mission committee. We have loads of missionaries that would love to feel a personal interest from you. Write them notes, send them emails, ask what their needs are, send them a, a million dollar check, you know, whatever, okay? Don't hold back. They're God's special servants, all right? And so let's pour on the love. <clears throat> Number four, take time to learn the cultural or religious traditions of people that God may want you to befriend. None of us are born with a natural knowledge of every culture around the world. It takes work. Your mission team at Emmanuel is giving out booklets today that will help you to understand the faith of Islam over a 30-day period. So when we release you from here, take those study guides. Let's pray. Spirit of God, awaken your love in us for the nations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.